so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Many Christians look at the world through disillusioned eyes and fear the way culture is changing. But a Christian worldview gives us courage to live in the world and to advance the kingdom by engaging, not retreating from, the world around us. At the SBC pre-conference, Russell Moore gave a talk on a Christian approach to cultural engagement. Let's listen now. Ezekiel 12, 1 through 16. And if you would, since these words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit of our Christ, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Holy Spirit says through the prophet Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, Prepare for yourself an exile's baggage and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. And perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And you shall go out yourself at evening in their sight as those who must go into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall and bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face so that you may not see the land, for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. And I did as I was commanded. I brought out my baggage by day as baggage for exile. And in the evening, I dug through the wall with my own hands. I brought out my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in the morning. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house said to you, what are you doing? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, this oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign for you as I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity, and the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out. He shall cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes. May God bless his word to us tonight. You may be seated. It's good to be in Texas. Think about Texas, so many great cities in Texas, Dallas, where we are right now, and Austin, and Houston, and San Antonio, and Abilene, cities that are so different from one another, and yet influence American life so much, each in their own way. But I have a special place in my heart for Lukenbach, <laughs> little town out in Texas that's only known, really, because of the, the place where 
uh, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and others would go to, to sing and perform every year, made famous in one of their songs. We need to get back to the basics of life and Lukenbach, Texas with Willie and Waylon and the boys. And the reason that that entire place and that entire movement uh, has a lot of meaning for me, I suppose, is because as Waylon Jennings put it, my heroes have always been outlaws in some way or the other. Outlaw Country, which is the, the name of that musical movement, uh, name, is named that not because it deals with thieves and robbers and bandits, although it, it sometimes will do that, but because it started outside of the normal culture of the Nashville music establishment. One observer that was looking at music said, Outlaw Country was trying to resist the music industry's unwritten rules, which said that songs need to be a certain length, they needed to be a certain meter, they needed to have a, a certain lyrical uh, content, they need to be recorded a certain way uh, in the studio. And even beyond that, those who were called outlaws when they first started writing songs and, and performing they were really dissenting against the, even the look and the feel of the music industry at the time. Waylon Jennings uh, would sing, rhinestone suits and new shiny cars, we've done the same thing for years, we need to change. Now, at the time, the music industry seemed to have the winning argument. Country music industry said, in order for us to reach emerging markets, Country music needs to sound more like the music that Americans already like. And so in order to do that, we need to make country music as generic as, as it can possibly be to reach the people who don't like country music. And the formula seemed to work. The outlaws were exiled to Texas where they went and wrote songs that seemed real to them, that seemed uh, to mean something to them. But it turns out that over time, that outlaw music happening in Texas turns out to have felt real to a lot of people all over the country. So as time went on, steel guitars and bandanas started to supplement, if not completely replace, those rhinestone suits and hairspray in Nashville. And ironically, the outlaws actually weren't outlaws. They weren't dissidents because they rejected country music tradition, but because they actually knew what it was and loved it. They were the people, as one journalist said, that if you walked into a room where there's a guitar and a Wall Street Journal, they would pick up the guitar. And it was also ironic that the, the outlaws and their allies, even though they had songs that were dismissed by the executives as being too gritty, or too intellectual, or even too country, would turn out to be the ones who could actually reach the people who were outside in other markets. Rednecks and hippies both loved Johnny Cash. And if you look at what was going on in that one little musical genre, you can see a similar activity happening in almost every musical genre in American life from jazz to hip-hop to even classical music. 
a sense of let's recover the tradition in a way that goes beyond the little silos we've put it in that takes us back to the past and also forward to the future at the same time. Now, the reason I say this is because it seems to me that those outlaw movements in American musical history have a lot to do with the time that we find ourselves in right now as American evangelical Christians. American life seems unstable. People hate each other. People are screaming at each other. People are defending things they never would have defended before. People are attacking things they never would have attacked before. People are saying things to one another they never would have said before. So as the the poet Yeats uh, put it uh, many years ago, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Social media right now. And at the same time, evangelical Christianity is facing really, really hard times. The demographic data are disturbing. When you look and see what is happening in terms of religious conviction with those who are in the next generation, the numbers do not look good. Cultural Christianity, that sort of nominal affiliation with the church and with Christ, has not gone away, but it's changed. And so, whereas in a previous generation, people who didn't know Christ would still need to belong to a church, now people can feel as though they belong to Christ, as though they belong to a religion without even being affiliated with a church at all. People who haven't been to church, who don't belong to a church, still have Jeremiah 29, 11 wall hangings in their house in many regions of the country right now. And in the middle of all of this, there are many people in our churches who are facing a moment of crisis. They look around and they're disappointed and they're disillusioned, many times with things that have gone on in their churches or things that they see going on nationally within the Christian movement. And people are scared when they look outside of their churches and they look at the culture around them. Even the moment that we're in right now seems to be God demonstrating and showing that there is no safe harbor from human depravity in American life right now. Where will you go to escape it? If you come out of Bill Cosby, you run right into Harvey Weinstein. If you go out from Harvey Weinstein and you end up from church after church after church after church after church, you see scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal, and every single, it seems, branch of the church and every single branch of the outside secular culture, all are having these things revealed at the same time almost as though God is saying there is no place in the flesh that you can carve out shelter from this. It must come from somewhere else. That can be disturbing and that can be scary, which is why I call our attention to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is not a book that many people read to their children before they go to bed at night. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel is not even a book that many people preach in their churches. 
unless they're preaching Ezekiel 37, the the valley of dry bones, or the, the new heart that God's going to give in a heart of flesh. But many people are kind of scared to teach or to preach through the rest of Ezekiel because it seems kind of bleak. And when you have wheels within wheels and really complicated sorts of visions, most people really don't want these new believers encountering the Bible through Ezekiel. So sometimes we, we, sort of, we sort of just move away from it. But we can't understand that Valley of Dry Bones text, as majestic as it is, unless we see everything else that Ezekiel is saying. And what Ezekiel is saying here speaks directly to our present cultural moment. Ezekiel here is writing to the people of God who have been deported, they've been exiled away from their country, they're living here in an occupied territory in a foreign land, in the land of their enemies. Babylon has come in and has taken a group of people, including the king, replaced him with a puppet ruler. And God says to Ezekiel, what I want you to do is a dramatic representation. He says, I want you to pack a bag. And I want you to pack this bag uh, just as you would if you were leaving in a hurry. Not like the Exodus, where God's people are, are gathering those items from the Egyptians and running outward toward liberation or toward freedom. No, just the opposite. I want you to pack a bag as though you are leaving, going into captivity. And I want you to do this as a sign for the rebellious people of God. He says, because there are several misconceptions that people have here. And he tells you what they are in these these chapters that surround the one that we just read. One of those is the worst is past. What we've experienced is now over. And the sorts of things that you're talking about right now are a long time off. We don't have to think about them anytime soon. But the other conception is, well, the exiles are the ones who are under God's judgment because they're the ones who are taken out of the land. The ones who are left behind in Jerusalem, those are the ones who are pure, and those are the ones that are good, and those are the ones that God has his favor upon. And Ezekiel is showing the people here, no, no, no. In chapter 11, the glory of God that resides in the temple itself leaves goes through Jerusalem and hovers there on the Mount of Olives outside of the temple. The glory has left the temple. So Ezekiel here is being called by God to say God's judgment is not just on the people who are suffering exile right now. God's judgment is upon those who think that they have escaped because they are living securely back in their homeland. He says, I want you to give a picture of exile to this rebellious house. Now, exile language can be dangerous. When American Christians sometimes use exile language, what we mean by that is that somehow we've lost some sort of cultural power that we need to get back to. We've lost some sort of influence. So that can, that can lead itself to a kind of nostalgia. 
It will say, well, if only we had what we had in thee, whatever the, the golden age that we imagine is, then everything would be working itself out fine. Or even worse, it can show up in a kind of siege mentality where we're in an angry situation because we believe ourselves to be exiled. That's not just the case for Christians. That, that sort of language shows up with almost every group of people in American life right now, no matter what their religious convictions, no matter what their political beliefs, no matter what their geography is in the country, to say, I feel like a stranger in my own land. I feel like I've lost a place of belonging. I feel like I've lost a home, and it's somebody else's fault that that's the case. One of the reasons that's so easy is because that kind of anger and that kind of sense of being under siege can actually make people feel alive. I was noticing several years ago a church that was splitting. Church was in complete conflict with one another, fighting all the time. And I said to an older uh, pastor who was in that community, what's going on at that church? He said, oh, they're bored. He said, it's just like in the old days when you could get a lot of people to come to a revival meeting because they didn't have anything else to do, and so this was a way they could come and see something at a revival meeting. It works the other way too. People who are kind of bored and don't have any drama in their lives can sometimes create drama just to have a sense of, I'm alive, I'm, I'm involved in something that's important. Even if what I'm involved in is on Facebook denouncing the other people who disagree with me about whatever it is. There's a, a danger here if we use exile language the way the rest of the world does. But the scripture tells us that we are, in fact, as the people of God, strangers and exiles. Think of what 1 Peter says. I urge you, brothers, as exiles and sojourners, to do what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, to have a non-conformity with the outside world, Peter says, but also a sense of honoring those who are around us. Peter says you can do this because you are a stranger and an exile. Well, why? Because your whole identity isn't tied up in the outside world. It gives you the ability to show kindness and gentleness to that outside world as you're on mission. Now, the exile language here is really serious. We think of it just in very metaphorical terms. But exile here is judgment. People of God are not only deported, but the Bible says they're scattered. And he says, I am scattering you to the nations so that you may declare your abominations before the nations and that they will know that I am the Lord. That doesn't seem to make sense. You do not want to go out among all the nations of the world and say, we want to declare to you that we are abominable. We want to declare to you our abominations. God says, Ezekiel, you are a sign of this, of this exile, and through this sign, although people may not listen to you, they may not observe what it is that you're doing, 
the ultimate truth will reveal that I am, in fact, the Lord. Ezekiel is a sign, and so are we. And we are a sign of the same thing. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And what is it that we are declaring and having declared to us in baptism? That we are crucified with Christ, that we are dead, that we are buried, and by no power that is in us, we are raised to newness of life in Christ. Baptism is a declaration that something is seriously, seriously wrong with us. That's the reason why John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. When Jesus says, I want you to baptize me, and John says, never will I do that. I'm not even fit to, to tie your, untie your, your, your sandals here. It's not because John is saying, well, this moment is just extra special and someone better than I should be the one doing it. No, John's saying, wait a minute. I'm sitting here calling people to baptism because they're vipers, because they're under the condemnation of God. They need a sign of going through God's judgment. And Jesus says, I will be baptized for what reason? To identify himself with us. We are the people who are judged before God in the cross. We are the people who are exiled outside of the gates of Jerusalem in the crucifixion of Jesus. We are the people who in our very identity of those who have been carried out of God's presence and then back into God's presence only by grace are giving a dramatic representation to the outside world of our own sin and powerlessness. That goes against everything that we naturally think we ought to be doing. Naturally, if you're trying to tell people, come and join us, be, be part of what we're doing, then you want to do public relations. And the public relations that you want to do is to highlight all the things that you do well and to hide or to de-emphasize all the things that are wrong with you. That just makes perfect sense in any culture. And yet the sign that God has given us to the outside culture is the exact reverse. We do not boast in ourselves, but we proclaim our own brokenness and sinfulness and our own need for grace. We proclaim what it means to be crucified with Christ. God says, Ezekiel, I want you to take this bag, fill it with stuff, and I want you to go through the wall and to give a dramatic representation of what it means to go into exile. And then a little bit later, he says, not only that, I want you, when you sit down to eat, I want you to sit down and eat with trembling hands, like you're scared to death, to show them what's going to happen later on. This is going to be the sign. That's not the kind of sign that I would want to have if I'm declaring the power of God. What I would want is a, a, a demonstration. See, look at the way I can levitate this chair. That's the way God's going to raise you up out of Babylon. 
Look at the way that I can shoot laser beams out of my hands. That's the way God's going to deal with Nebuchadnezzar. But instead, God says, the sign here is in weakness, not in strength. The sign here is in brokenness and not in power. The sign here is in a loss of influence, not a hoarding of influence. That doesn't make sense. Short-term, power and wealth get attention. But long-term, the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ is what actually does the work. Is it better to be in Jerusalem or to be in exile? Anybody with a functioning brainstem would say it's better to be in Jerusalem. And yet God says, those of you who are in exile, I have been a sanctuary to you there. As a matter of fact, it is only through the exile that God preserves his people. Because God says to Ezekiel, I want you to look and see what is going on in the temple. And he shows him a picture of what's happening in the temple back home in Jerusalem. And he sees the people in the temple bowing down and worshiping the idols of the other nations. And why are they doing this? Well, probably for political power, probably for some sort of influence, probably for some sort of power and some sort of help. The way that we can be delivered from Babylon and Egypt and all of the other foreign powers around us is to become like them. And God says, no, it is only those that I am taking out of here that I am working through to save the world. And he shows Ezekiel what leads to that kind of hidden sin, what leads to something that would cause people to be able to even bring abominations into the temple of God itself. How can you do that when you've read Deuteronomy? And God says, I'll tell you why they do it. They do it because they say, God does not see us. It's easy to conclude that. That's one of the reasons why so many people are enslaved to patterns and habits of sin in their life right now. It's because they have done things and then they have not been caught in those things in such a way that it is easy to conclude, because I have not been caught, I will never be caught. And because there have been no consequences, there will never be consequences for me. God does not see. God does not know. Also, because they have this presumption, we're the people of God. Almost everybody I know who has wrecked in ministry is always able to justify what he or she is doing on the basis of the good that he or she has done in some other area. Well, since God has used me in this way, then God understands that this other thing is taking place. They, they say, we're always gonna be God's people. God's always gonna be here for us. As, as one minister who was uh, committing adultery and destroying his wife and family said to me, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but God will forgive me because that's God's job. The presumption that is here. And then number three, 
Chapter eight, verse 12 says something very interesting. The people are convinced that they are under judgment no matter what. Just like a kid who his parents fuss at him no matter what it is he does, can sometimes conclude, well, I'm never gonna be able to please these people, so I'm just gonna do what I want to and do it to the, to the nth degree. People can have that relationship to God. If they have an understanding that there is no law of God, that leads to more sin. But also it's true if they have the, the understanding that there's no grace of God, that leads to more sin. This is just who I am. This is just what is true about me. And no matter what it is that I do, I'm going to be under condemnation anyway, so I'm just going to work these things out. When we find ourselves in an outside culture where often there is a, uh, a sense of misunderstanding about what even the, the meaning of words like sin and righteousness and justice are, one of the most dangerous things we can do is to preach grace without truth or truth without grace. Why are we seeing so many scandals in the church right now? Why are we seeing so many people in leadership falling? Well, part of it might be that we we don't take seriously the character qualifications of Scripture. That's true. But I think another reason is because often we savage people when they're at the beginning points of seeking help in a way that causes them not to seek help anymore. There are a lot of pastors and church planters and women's ministry leaders and others who are out there right now who are thinking to themselves, I am at a place of great spiritual dryness. I can't even bring myself to pray right now. I can't even bring myself to concentrate on the scripture right now. I feel as though I'm empty and exhausted and alone, and they're afraid that if they say that to the people around them, that somehow that is going to let down the people that they're ministering to, when in reality, if there were the freedom to come forward and saying, hey, everybody, I'm at a place of great danger here right now in my life and you had a church that could come up around those people at the beginning, we probably wouldn't see some of the disasters that we see later on. And because you have sometimes people who are in a situation where they're required to minister and they're required to talk about the Bible in such a way that cannot at any point evidence that there is any danger, weakness, temptation at all, that is a dangerous place to be. If we are to be the sign of God's presence in the world, then that means that what it means to be strangers and exiles is to confess, I am someone on my own who would deserve to be in hell right now, apart from the grace of God. I am someone minute by minute by minute is on the verge of completely destroying and wrecking my life right now, apart from the Spirit of God. 
And I am someone who recognizes the blessing of exile if one is exiled from a place where one shouldn't have been in the first place. When the spirit, when the glory of God leaves the temple and hovers over the Mount of Olives, that's a terrifying picture. God is leaving his people, but it also is a sign of hope. God is starting something new. God is returning at one point from the Mount of Olives back into his presence within the people. That's a sign that Ezekiel is giving. He is a dramatic representation. You and I are to be even more so. Whatever you think about church drama and having church dramas at Christmas or at Easter or what have you, we are a church drama. The very life of the church itself is a dramatic picture and a sign to the outside world. And Jesus says the sign that people want is some demonstration of power. Or the sign that they want is give me something that, that I already want. When you see Jesus leaving in the Gospels, he is leaving when they want to make him king power, or when they want him to provide them with more bread, provision. He says, you don't get what it is that I'm here for. I will give you a sign, but the sign that I am giving to you is the sign of Jonah, the sign of one who is buried in the earth under the condemnation of sin and who is raised to newness of life. I was talking to a woman just a few days ago whose mother is in the final stages of Alzheimer's. She doesn't recognize anybody around her. She doesn't know the names of any of her children, of her husband. She said, but she will sing hymn after hymn after hymn after hymn. And if you just start one line of a hymn, she will sing all the rest of it. And she doesn't even know what her name is. Now, why is that? Is it because hymns kind of reach deeper into us in a lot of things? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think it's also true that those hymns stay because sometimes they speak deeper than the things that we say verbally. Our hymns sometimes emphasize more than anything else that we do the reality of the cross, of what it means for God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And our temptation, when it comes to dealing with the outside world, is to, when we're speaking to ourselves on the inside, to downplay sin. We don't want anybody to know what's going on here with us. We don't want to air our dirty laundry. We downplay it on the inside. But then when we speak to the outside world to make sin overwhelming, we speak to you in terms of the fact that you're our enemies and we will defeat you. In reality, though, the Scripture does it exactly the reverse. 1 Corinthians 5, it is not those on the outside that I judge. 
It is those who are on the inside. When I tell you to depart from the one who is immoral, I am not talking about the immoral of this world unless you would have to leave the world, in which case you would have to leave the world. I am talking about the one who bears the name of brother. When we speak of the reality of sin and the reality of God's judgment, and we do it in the context of the cross, what we're doing is speaking a word that can bring liberation to people, if we really believe it. Several years ago, I was having my conscience was bothering me about the way that I had handled a situation thought I'd been too harsh, and I would just kind of work through and replay how I had spoken to someone, and I said, I think I was just too harsh with that, and I had all of my friends around me who were saying to me, no, you weren't too harsh. You did it exactly right. You had to because of the situation, but my conscience was just still bothering me until I was talking to this much, much older man in ministry, and I was just, I'm just still trying to work this through. And he said, yeah, I think you were a jerk. As a matter of fact, I think the way you handled that is even worse than you think it was. So what now? And you know what? Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, those may have been the most liberating words I've ever heard. Because everybody's saying to me, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Everybody makes mistakes. I knew that I'd been too harsh. This was someone who said, yeah, I actually agree with your conscience, but your problem is that you're so full of pride that you believe somehow that you can commit a sin that is so extraordinary and so unprecedented that you cannot take it to the cross. And that's what you should repent of right now. I left there doing leprechaun kicks out of that room. You know, the people who are in the culture around us are not people who are ignorant of their sin before God. Bible tells us Romans 2, there is a witness that is within the heart. Bible tells us Hebrews 2, there is a slavery that comes with fear of death. When we speak honestly to people and we say, all of your intuitions about your sin are true. And let me tell you what they are, even though you may have hidden them very, very deep inside of you. But also, all of your intuitions also may be hidden deep down that there is someone who loves you, who is longing to forgive you, is true also. We talk about exile because we understand and we know that a despair that thinks that I can never be forgiven will lead to destruction, and a presumption that thinks I never need to be forgiven leads to destruction. We are the people who ought to understand and know the culture cannot make us right, even if we were to take it over and do it exactly the way we think it ought to be run. Political structures cannot make us right, even if we were to take them over and do them exactly the way that they ought to be done. 
The church must be holy and set apart, not in order to say to the outside world, look at how much superior we are to you, but because we are the people who are saying, we have been through judgment day and we have been found guilty. And we stand before you with the message that there is redemption and reconciliation found in the blood of Jesus Christ. That means a kind of church that is willing not just to say whatever the people who are in front of us right now might expect us to say, but to speak in such a way that we are talking to the people that we will be addressing in 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years with the consistency and the integrity of being able to say, I knew nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That is sometimes going to seem radically new, but it's not. It's getting back to something radically old. You know, outlaw country music didn't permanently change its commercial ecosystem. They listen to Bro country, if you want to, these days. And Waylon Jennings sang about that one time. He said, uh, me and old Willie, Lordy, we've been sold and bought. I guess y'all heard about some sort of system that we fought. We ain't the only outlaws, just the only ones they caught. They tried to run us off, but Willie's slow. <laughs> and I quit running a long time ago. National establishment didn't think it needed reform. They were making records selling records, making money. And they said, writing these, these songs that speak to all of these other realities aren't what people are looking for right now. But as one observer said, the Opry audience, he said, was the Nashville Sound, the industry's target demographic, and no one's ever eager to fix a cash machine that isn't broken. But threads wear imperceptibly at first before they rip. And that's true even with threads studded with rhinestone. The outlaw genre brought an infusion of change without which the music form would have succeeded its way all the way toward oblivion. It would have spoken to a homogenous and aging cultural cul-de-sac with little relevance to those who were not already fans, and the industry would have succeeded itself to death. Something very similar happens within the mission of the church. We can have comfortable ministries speaking only those words that the people already in front of us want us to say and that they do not find disturbing or threatening, or we can be on mission with Jesus Christ in a way that speaks the whole truth, truth and grace, righteousness and mercy, the cross of Jesus Christ. We carry this exile's baggage. That's not despair, that's hope because the baggage on our backs is a cross. 
the words in our mouth are the words of the cross. The power in our ministries is the power of the cross. And that means we'll save our lives by losing them. We'll find our home by being exiles. We will find our power by becoming weak and powerless. So when we look at all the cultural changes that are happening around us and we're tempted to say, oh, it's so terrible out there right now. When we look at some of the very real challenges that we face within our churches, it's easy to just say, oh, I just give up. I'm just gonna leave and go somewhere else. Where will you go where this is not the case? This is the time to remember who brought us here where we're going, and to pack these bags for a mission to see the world reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ as a dramatic sign that if we can be saved, you can be saved. If we can sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, so can you. We pack the exile's baggage, but we do not pack it to put it in storage. We pack the exile's baggage to go out, to go, as somebody might put it, on the road again. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. Lord, I pray for those in this room right now who are discouraged. Some of them are in ministries, and and they've been pouring their lives into their ministries, and they don't see visible fruit in front of them, and they're they're willing, they're tempted to be discouraged. I pray for the others in this room who maybe are under target right now. They are being tempted in ways that they, they, they don't even want to tell the people around them. They're Some in this room are bearing incredible burdens. And Lord, I just pray, if that's the case, that you would break through our pride, that you would give us the freedom to be able to say to one another, I need help. To be able to say to one another, I need to confess sin. To be able to say to one another, I need to be reminded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Lord, would your spirit give us the freedom to be able to see that and to receive it? And Lord, would you give us the ability to be odd in the culture around us? Not odd because we think we're better than the culture, but Lord, because we think we're worse. We think we're crucified, but we're raised in Christ. Would you give us that hope? We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Podcast and leave us a review. And join us next week as we hear a panel discussion about the complexity of Dr. King and his legacy.